You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive. My name is Carl, Carl Gaelic. I am truly into origins. The uh, JW Space Telescope that's gone up and is parked a million miles away or something, I don't know the specifics of it, is uh, just throwing up pictures and images and upsetting science and origins and how the universe began. I love listening to scientists say, we think the universe began this way. And then a week later, it's, no, 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 that, 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 that. Or they add billions of years, or they subtract millions of years, whatever it is. It, I, I'm fascinated by that. And uh, love what we learn, and certainly the heavens declare the glory of God are no phenomena. Just uh, one of the more interesting things I remember discovering is uh, Hubble Space Telescope pointed it, its uh, self at the darkest place that it could find in, uh, in the sky. And it took uh, photographs of that and sent those back to Earth. And he looked at it, you know, the darkest place. There's just blackness to the naked eye. But to the Hubble Space Telescope, when it focused on it, it found millions of stars. And then they sent the JW, JW Space Telescope to look at the same spot, and it's sharper or better or clearer or bigger or I don't know what it is, but it looks further into the universe and do that. And it said, I'm sorry, those weren't stars, they were galaxies. Oh, oh my God. So that means there was millions of galaxies that contained millions of stars where we saw nothing but darkness. Does that not preach or does that preach? It's like, uh, amen. Amen. Every amen I hear extends the sermon by two to three minutes. So, <laughs> so the echoes of Eden really resonates with me because the origins of what went on in Eden are, have a, an incredible effect on us. Let me ask you one more sort of lead question before we kind of get into things here. Uh, and that is... Uh, what does access to God look like to you? What does access to God look like to you? When you pass from this world to the next, and you will someday, you will have, Lord willing, and through Christ, access to God. Like the song, I Can Only Imagine, will I absolutely be frozen in silence, overwhelmed in love? Can you embrace light? Will it be like walking in the cool of the day in the original garden? And God will be like in Christ a friend? I've been watching The Chosen and kind of keep, keeping up with that. And there's some pros and cons to the whole thing. There's some extra biblical material. But I love the way they create the very human Jesus, not withdrawing from his divinity. But that's kind of critical to today because the text we're going to take a look at is going to talk about the origin of how we lost access to God. How, how, did, how did that happen? And where are we supposed to go from here? How do we do that? Well, how do we get back? How do we get that access? In today's world, in today's culture, in today's political climate, how many of us, and though this is a rhetorical question, I'm not taking a poll, 
Uh, how many of us are hopeful? Hope has kind of uh, uh, been shot at, hadn't it? It's been decimated. It's hard to find hope. And I can get myself hopeful for a while, but then I turn to the right and I read that article and I look at that information. I, uh, hope begins to sort of be eaten away like a cancer. How many of you can say you experience delight, are absolutely delighted? Not over something or somebody or someone, but are just people you say, you know, how you doing? I'm delighted. Nobody ever says that. <laughs> and if they say that too, too often, you try to give them medication. <laughs> it's like, I'm delighted. What if, what if our original place and time was with direct access to God, which provided us an incredible sense of hopefulness? We just lived in hope. It's not like we had to be hopeful. We didn't have to muster hopefulness. We lived in it. Can you imagine being surrounded and living in hope? A friend of mine who is my mentor in the ministry said that uh, if fish could, he had a phrase that said, if fish could speak, they wouldn't have a word for water. Right? Because they're so encompassed by water, how they, they, they couldn't speak, despite the Disney cartoons. To the contrary. What if we lived in hope and it was just surrounding us and we anticipated that God's presence and power would overcome our any difficulties, any sorrows, any issue. So what we're going to talk about today is the origin, not of the cosmological universe, but of sin. Where did this come from? How did we lose our access? What, uh, what caused it? How did we lose our hopefulness? And what happened to delight? What happened to delight? Let's journey together, not to the edges of the universe as though we could find the edges of the universe, but to the edge of the, that and to see what our Lord's response is to that. Let's pray first. Gracious God, thank you for the opportunity to bring uh, your word of hope and access and life. We pray for John and his family that they enjoy their time together, that they celebrate the exercise which is theirs. We thank you for the opportunity to meet here and in a short while commission missionaries on their way to Guatemala to serve and give your name. But right now send your spirit to us to help us understand how we lost that access, how we need to be delighted, and how we can find hope again in Jesus name. Amen. So the undoing of Adam's original sin woven into humanity. If you find those who are skeptics or unbelievers or doubters, even Christians who are doubters, you find that they're pretty reluctant. to. They, there's a lot of pushback on Adam's original sin is giving me problems. So what I'm going to show you today is that it's not only giving me problems, it's, it's now my world. It's now everywhere I turn, every direction I look, every decision I make, every relationship I wrestle with, even the most intimate of those relationships has a place and a point of difficulty, grinding, struggle, work. And it's woven so deeply and so powerfully into humanities that we oftentimes don't even know we're looking at it. 
This is the text we're going to go. It's from Romans. And when Paul wrote the book of Romans, it was probably his last book to be written. It's very theological. It's got a lot of phrases. very difficult Greek. I remember going, taking the, taking the class at seminary on Book of Romans and wishing I hadn't. <laughs> it was a tough book to read in the original language. But here, here we go. This is in English. So I, I get it. Therefore, Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many, and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, if you're like me at all, when I read the book of Romans, I go, I read a text like that and then my first thought is, huh? <laughs> the rest of the sermon is the response to what I typically have when I read through Romans. It's like, what? It sounds heavy, and it sounds deep, and it sounds powerful, but it needs some unpacking. Let's unpack it together. So the systemic effect of original sin comes from just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. There's something you need to know from me between Mary Louise and I. She's placed a limit on the number of times in any one day, especially in any one sermon, that I can use the word systemic. The reason that's the case is because I did a doctoral thesis and wrote a book that has to do with systemic thought and systemic therapy and systemic work with people and systemic interaction of the world and systemic cosmology. She got so tired of hearing the word systemic, she said, you get six to use. (laughs) And honey, using the example of the past doesn't count. Uh, I see the world systemically, which means that one part changes, everything changes. You want to change Earth's orbiting around the sun? Move Pluto. Just nudge Jupiter, and it'll all change. If you want to see the room shift and change, just let me preach the sermon from right here. It could be the same text. It could be the same words, the same phrases, but my context, my posture, my place in the room changed and that's altering your physiology, even as we speak. He, he's hoping I leave soon. <laughs> and uh, I can hear you better. You can hear me better now. Yeah, I'll speak up when I get back. 
Um, if you were to measure, thank you for helping me. You, you are a unwilling volunteer. This is unrehearsed. If you were to put a blood pressure cuff on him, you would begin to discover that his blood pressure was rising, his pupils were dilating, and all I did was change my place in the room. All Adam did was disobey God. Can I use this phrase and not get in trouble? John's not here, so I'll go try it. And everything went to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> One issue, one sin, one motion, one effort changed our relationship, our posture, our position next to God. And that <laughs> blew the whole thing up. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's now woven into genetics. It's now woven into uh, aging. It's now woven into relationships. It's now woven into relationships. It's now woven into who we are, what we do, how we do it, how we reproduce, intergenerational work. It's now a part of us. It's not something that happened back there that, that we can point to because it's here. It's right here. Mary Louise and I just sent away for the 23andMe, the, the sort of genetic testing. I was really reluctant to do that, but I ended up doing, giving in. And I'm not sure I trust all of the results. I, uh, both of my parents were Slovak. It did 88% Slovak. Uh, which, I, which is odd because I can speak 0% Slovak. Uh, <laughs> but um, it, it also was telling us some very, very odd things. I'm more 80, 22% likely to have a unibrow. <laughs> it was on there. It was on there. And there was a listing. If you've ever done the 23, that's why I'm really careful with my brows now. <laughs> The, the, uh, the number of things it had on there are, are border on ridiculous and funny. I thought, is somebody playing a joke on me? Uh, there's dozens of characteristics that are woven into our genetics, and I'm not doubting that there's a science behind that and that it fits and it measures. My point isn't for you to check out my unibrow. My point is that our genetics are woven into sin and sin into our genetics, and it's just, it's there. Systemic. So I almost didn't put this one in there because I, was, I asked uh, Gemini, who is the, the Google's uh, uh, AI, is there, an, uh, is there evidence of an original origin of species? And this is what it gave me. I'm not even sure what mitochondrial DNA is, but studies of it from diverse populations worldwide reveal a shared ancestor for all humans. I'm not sure what nuclear DNA is, but it also shows evidence of a single origin, the result being the combined evidence from genetics, fossils, archaeology, overwhelmingly points toward a single origin for all modern humans. Huh. You get it? It all would happen at a point Right at this point, went boom and exploded. And we're still feeling its effect today. It is 
systemic. And I know I'm up to point number, word number three. So Adam Sin now uh, woven into culture, woven into genetics, woven into who we are. Adam Sin cannot be unseen. So literally, it's physically impossible to erase an image from your brain. Once the visual information is processed, it becomes stored in your memory. That's an incredibly complex and wonderful gift, and also a problem. Figuratively, it refers to the lasting impact an image or experience can have on your mind, even if you wish you could forget it. How many of us have seen something and go, I just wish I could forget it, but you can't unsee it. This could be something disturbing, surprising, or simply unforgettable. Moments that stick in our brain. It highlights the power of perception, how certain things can shift your understanding of the world, making it impossible to go back to your previous perspective. So what have we discovered? That Adam's original break, Adam's original distrust of God, Adam's original sin had systemic effect blew us up, changed our world, is woven into who we are genetically, culturally, figuratively, literally, and gives us a skewed perspective. Here's how skewed my perspective is. You know who I see, you know the point of view I see the world from? Mine! <laughs> not yours and not God's. I see it from my perspective. You see, the problem with my perspective is it's my opic. It's self-serving. It's incomplete. I am my own problem. <laughs> and I can't change that. I can't alter my perspective. Because it's genetic, it's cultural, it's historical, it's archaeological. It can be unseen. I thought I'd bring some examples of original sin systemic impact. This first one, I don't know that I've ever preached that or used it as an example. I sat back, kind of started thinking about this, and this image came up. It's really, really odd. I asked mom about it. She didn't remember. I was in third grade, and I was born and raised in the city of Chicago, <clears throat> not too far from Midway Airport. In fact, really close to Midway Airport. We could tell if the pilot did not shave that day when they, when they landed. It was just like that. And I was a third grade. I had a friend named Richard Scrizina. And uh, I, was, I had received permission from mom and, his, and him from his mom to walk beyond the old houses, which is about four or five houses, to the, where the new houses began. Now, that was a big adventure for a guy in third grade. So we set off on our adventure and received permission and told our parents we'd come right back. I grew up in, and our neighborhood was populated with uh, what we used to call raised ranch houses. They were ranch-style houses, and they went up five concrete steps at the front porch to get into the front door. Had the mailbox right there by the front door, and you put the mail in, and it came through the coat closet in, in the back. And we're walking, and we're, we make it past the old houses, which is about four or five. We're about one-third down the block on our new adventure and walk. And all of a sudden, we hear a door sling, sling open on one of these houses to our right. And I can, so I'm picturing it as I speak. It's not pleasant. 
the door opened and a big hairy arm pushed a woman out the door and said, get out of here, you bad word. She tumbled down the about five or six stairs that are cement. And Richard's cuisine and I were just frozen. I'm imagining I had this wide-eyed look of fear. She's crying. She writes herself before she stands up. She locks eyes with me, must have read my face, and said, I'll be okay, through tears then runs along this gangway between the houses. The houses in Chicago were real were close to one another. Runs through the gangway and into the side door. We decided our adventure was over. We went home. I never walked around the block the rest of my life. No, that's not true. But it had an impact on me. You could almost hear the impact as I tell the story, can't you? So. That's the systemic effect of sin. Now, that event, whatever was happening there, I don't know, spousal abuse. I end up with a degree in Masters of Divinity to become a pastor. I follow that up with becoming a marriage and family therapist. Follow that up with a doctorate in the systemic effect of how all that works together. I'm not saying that that one event caused me to get way too many degrees. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying it had an impact. It was life-changing. It now created a memory, changed the physiology, created opportunity, and I did an internship at some place called WIN, Women in Need in Greenville, Texas for women who were being abused by their husbands and did research on that while I was working there. See the systemic effect? Each of us has those stories that can find life-changing events that we wish we could unsee but can't. And it's worse. Seeing a character that I was remembering as I just sort of reflected back uh, a good friend of mine saw somebody uh, get into an accident on a highway, and the person must have not been belted, and was thrown from the car. And he was telling me, <clears throat> we were young adults, he was telling me what that felt like and how it was a haunting kind of image. This hauntingness is also going to find a clinical name, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, most commonly associated with the issues and struggles of the military and what they see but it is also present in much of our lives from abuse and the kind of issues and struggles and divorces and painful memories that occur. And those memories flood and pop up suddenly and interruptively and interfere with life and relationships and the like. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. As a therapist, I know there's also something even worse than that called disassociative disorders, where things happen so overwhelmingly, powerfully bad to us, to the person, 
that their mind goes someplace else. I first learned about this when I was a pastor in Texas. A woman was abused as a child. I won't get into any of the details, but would go to her safe little place. I couldn't figure out what that was until I studied it, so I was learning to become a therapist. So she would go to escape the trauma of what was going on in her life. Wow. Kind of heavy, isn't it? The nature of sin's systemic effect is the point. From venturing beyond the old houses to the post-traumatic stress disorder and disassociative disorders and issues in our lives, this is the genetic, relational, spiritual effect of original sin. It's a big deal. And we're stuck in it. It's also true culturally. Change gears just a little bit. But cultures throughout the centuries have sensed this original sin and this origin of evil in the world has been a puzzle to them. Adam's original sin echoes through time and cultures. Pandora's box, about 7 BC. It's hard to date Pandora's box because it was a part of a mythical culture and oral tradition, so it really is difficult to put a date on it, but in an area of 7 BC. And what it was is the Greek mythological try to attempt to explain the origin of evil. And the gods who were ticked off at humans, which is oftentimes the case in mythologies, the God brought to Pandora a box and says, here's a gift for you, Pandora. The trick is you can't open it. <laughs> and of course she did, and outflowed evil of every sort, and that was the origin according to Greek mythology. We know that as mythology, and as Christians we know that it's the opposite measure, is that God doesn't go along tricking humanity, but redeeming and saving. But the point was they're struggling for a way to resolve and answer and address the fact that they understood there was a point at which evil entered the world. This is true as well for uh, can't put the genie back in the bottle. This is what Disney, what Disney uh, was it? Uh, Aladdin. Aladdin. And who was the famous uh, comedian who spoke of it? Robin Williams was my favorite Aladdin. He was, he was hilarious. And so, but the point is that from the 12th century, the Arabian culture tried to explain the origin of evil as well. And they talked about the myth of not putting the genie back in the bottle. Disney grabbed a hold of it and made it a pretty funny movie, frankly. Watch it with my kids. But they tried to explain that once the genie's out, you can't get him back in. You can't do with the troubles back in. See how the same kind of truth is echoing through culture? Genesis explains that cultures, myth like myth mythological stories and the like, try to go, yeah, this is an issue. There was an origin to it, and it's causing problems. How about that one? Jurassic Park in the was it 80s or 90s? Yeah, all still. <laughs> Jurassic Park, story 12, whatever it is, I know. But the original one, anyway, was the story of how the problem of evil uh, encompassed and developed over the island. And the question was not whether we could, but whether we 
should. Point of, point of it is the evil on the island originated in humanity, which is also true of this. This is an interesting movie, a little bit more subtle. Have you seen this movie, The Butterfly Effect? Yeah. It's kind of interesting. It's Aston Kutcher plays a, a kid who can travel through time. And what he does is, it's his girlfriend behind him, and what he tries to do is travel back in time in various places and times to correct his own mistakes or the issues around him. And surprise, surprise, every time he tries to change something, it gets worse. Point of all this is, this is how wrapped up. It's culturally, it's everything from PTSDs that our military go through, it's relational, it's contextual, it's childhood memories, it's handed down, it's genetic, it's woven tightly into us. So the old Adam, original sin, is killing us. We can't unsee it, we can't redo it, we can't repair it, we can't live with it. Matter of fact, we die with it. Okay, that's the end of the sermon. <laughs> no, it's not. Teasing. Amen. <laughs> Amen, it's not, right? Uh, look at that. I was reviewing this going, boy, Carl, you better, better be good after this because you've created a deep hole. We've created a deep hole. Cultures recognize it. People recognize it. God recognizes it. See, the good news begins. So God introduced the new Adam. So we're going to have a new Adam. So this is words from St. Paul from Romans 4. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul is really emphasizing Jesus' humanity here. So just to kind of give us a theological update, Jesus is uh, not 50% man, 50% God. He is 100% man, 100% God. How does that work, Carl? I haven't a clue. <laughs> Just that it does and it is. So what we've got here is Paul emphasizing, okay, so Adam blew it. We're caught up in the cesspool of it. Jesus Christ has died for one man's transgression. He is systemically, I'm at number five, systemically undoing it. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Justification is one of those big theological words that I love. You know why I love it? Because it happens to me. You'll find that uh, the world religions, and, and check me on this, and test me on this, the world religions will all tell you how to get from point A to point B. Only Christianity tells you, you can't get to point B. So God is going to come from point B to point A and bring you back with him to point B to get you there. My son, Dave, when he was back in college, went to Valpo and came home with a World Religions book and kind of said, Dad, I'm studying it this, this, this year, like he was, had some news. And I went, Dave, I'm, I'm going to take you to the last chapter. Here's the spoiler. <laughs> Everybody's going from A to B, except Jesus. He's coming from B to get you at A.
That act of coming to get you is called justification. He's declaring you righteous because of the cross of Christ, because he's paid for the sins of the world. He is saying, nope, I look at you and I see perfection. And as much as I love her, when I look at Mary Louise, I don't see perfection. She chose me, how perfect should she be? <laughs> but God, because he looks at her through the lens of Christ, sees a perfect, whole, loved person, creature, perfect. It's amazing. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The abundance of grace. You know why Jesus did this? Do you know why it all happened? Do you know why he began to undo it? He wanted to. It's his gift. It was one of the sad and difficult truths that I first learned someplace early on in the ministry when I discovered in reading a commentary, God does not need me in heaven. Well, wait a second here. Does not need me in heaven. No, he doesn't. He wants me in heaven. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, has a wonderful reference to this where a man comes up from this fictitious bus ride from hell to heaven and keeps and meets his wife, who is just this flourishing, beautiful woman who used to clean floors in a nursing home back on planet Earth. She comes up and he goes, asks his wife this question, and just a short, short example. He goes, did you miss me? Trying to latch on to her guilt, trying to create a codependent relationship. Did you miss me? She smiles at him and says, you don't understand. I live in love. Everything about me is whole, complete, wonderfully all together. I can't miss you. There's no room. Did you miss me? And every time he asked a question, he grew smaller and smaller and smaller till he popped out of existence. He did this out of abundance of grace because he wants to, because he can, because he loves you, because that's who God is. All the images that our original sin produced of a stern God, of an angry God, of a manipulative God, of a blind God, are a lot of baloney. They have their origin in us, not in the Word, not in God's power, not in God's plan, not in God's peace, not in bread and wine, which are also at the very same time body and blood. You know how that happens? Me neither! <laughs> It's something similar to the incredible design of Jesus being God and man at the same time. I don't get it. But when I look in dark places through his eyes, I see more light than I ever, ever saw before. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man. We not only share him, we reign. He uses the term John always pulls out a Greek word, so I don't want to be undone or disappoint the group. So I, I, got one, I got one coming up. Oh, it's not this slide, it's coming up. The contrast of the two Adams. 
one man's trespass, Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden as the root of sin. We've already kind of established that. The abundance of grace that highlights God's immense and undeserved love and favor towards humanity despite their sin. So you don't have to come to church like on your best behavior and get ready for God so he will accept you or the people of that church will accept you, but rather open and ready to confess and to receive. Death reigned. Death is what reigns. Sin brought death and its consequences upon humanity. This includes separation from God, physical death, and suffering. Reign in life illustrates eternal life, spiritual wholeness, and victory over death made possible through faith in Jesus. So there's my Greek word, basileo. I don't really need it, but I have to keep up John's sort of cadence of Greek, of Greek words. Basileo. To be king, to exercise kingly power, to reign. And we find like books in Revelation and Daniel that we're called on to not just exist in the kingdom, but to share a reign with him. Come reign with me. They sang a new song saying, this is you and me. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain in your blood. You ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's a song, and we're singing it together. Or go back 400 years to Daniel. Daniel says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. We are called on to reign from 400-year-old scriptures to 200-year-old scriptures. So what do we have? The original blessing is restored. Justification means we're declared righteous means bam! We were kicked out of the garden lest we live eternally in a sinful condition. We have access to God once again. Even though right now, I don't know what that looks like. Even though right now, I don't know exactly what that feels like. But I do know when I look at the darkest places of this world and my life and the life that exists, when I look at it through Christ's eyes, I see millions of points of light, billions of places to be lit. Abundance of grace. Abundance of grace. I become confident that no matter what I think and do and say and live, and how I fall short, I can confidence I have been redeemed. The free gift of righteousness gives me a sense of delight. It's already God's gift. Undoing of Adam's original sin woven into humanity. I'm going to use up all my systemics, but here we go. Sin systemically pulled us down. Christ systemically lifted us up and said, Come on, reign with me. It's already begun. Amen.